0: Some of you have maybe read some books by Christine Kane or heard her speak, like at the Global Leadership Summit or some places like that. Her and her husband Nick founded a global anti-human trafficking organization. Um, they're people, they're Christians, they're followers of Christ and, and as a uh, people who work in that kind of, for, toward that kind of ministry, they have to go into some pretty dark places and they have to be exposed to some pretty dark things. Dark places that are hopeless, hopeless places for so many people. But they go in there with the light of Christ. They bring the light of Christ into these very dark, dark places. Now when you go with the light of Christ into really, really dark places, like what they go into, it also becomes dangerous because you become a target, someone to defeat by people who are willing to to do just about anything to make more money and to not go to jail and to accomplish what they want to accomplish. But it's what she does. A few years ago, she was talking about it, and she says, a lot of people ask me, how do I do it? And she told a story, and it was about her four-year-old daughter. And she says, her four-year-old daughter is, is afraid of the dark normally, but give her a flashlight, just a little beam of light. And she becomes emboldened, she becomes courageous with that little beam of light. And they, She said, we were in a, in a Walmart shopping for a flashlight. We needed a flashlight and we were shopping for a flashlight. We looked at them all over, we finally bought it. On our way out, she says, her daughter turned to her and said, mommy, can we please go find some darkness? <laughs> and then Cain expounded on the idea. She explained that it doesn't take a whole lot of light to dispel a really dark place doesn't take a whole lot of light. And a little flashlight can create a lot of light in a dark place. But we go with the light of Christ. That's not just a little flashlight light. We go with the light of Christ. It'd be a lot easier, she said, to stay in the light and to shout at the darkness. But we're called to go with the light of Christ into the dark places. And we can't give in. So sometimes we're, we're tempted to stay in the light. Uh, she, she explains, sometimes we're tempted to stay in the light and shout at the darkness. Sometimes we can't. I would say sometimes we can't even muster up shouting at the darkness. We just despair and we begin to lose hope because of the darkness around us. And other times we're tempted to just, like I said earlier, give in to get along. And none of these responses are the way of Jesus. None of them are. The Apostle Peter saw this firsthand. First uh, Peter is written by Peter, the Apostle Peter. And, and Peter went and walked with Jesus for nearly three years, being trained by him. He saw how Jesus responded to the darkness in his world. He saw how Jesus responded to the opposition, which he was facing everywhere he turned, which eventually put him on the cross. He saw how Jesus responded, so he knows something about responding to dark times and dark times of persecution. And he reminds the people that he writes, the people he's writing this letter to, a circular letter that's going to several churches, he reminds them in a time of persecution, he reminds them of sources of strength. And we're going to look at three of those sources of strength that we have in dark times. So I'm going to read the passage. And as I read, look for those sources of strength in dark times. The, the, the letter before this and after this refers specifically to the persecution they are experiencing many, many times. So he's speaking to people who are experiencing a lot of pressure for their faith. And this is what he says, beginning in verse 4 of 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what he does here is he uses an image and the image is of a building and the building is specifically of a temple. And so with this idea of a temple, he starts thinking about priesthood and sacrifices and then he goes off on a little tangent that relates to the overall situation here but doesn't relate to what we're talking about today so we're going to pick up when he gets back to this train of thought. Look at verse 9. And you are a chosen people to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. All right, so to a persecuted minority community of Christians within the Roman Empire, he reminds them and he drives home just how adored they are by God. And that's our first source of strength is that is to just realize we are precious in God's sight. That's what the text says. We're precious in God's sight. We're his, we're his precious possession. Uh, and he does it not just in saying that, he does it in all kinds of ways. The, the, the letter refers to the persecution that they're going through, but we don't know what the persecution is. First Peter is not, We can't get an exact date. It's written sometime. Historians say it's written, you know, they they get about a 10-year span of when it could have been written. And we oftentimes think of Christians in the first century as being fed to the lions and that sort of thing, and that did happen, but that wasn't the norm. That wasn't the default of the Roman Empire. It depended on who was the emperor. And then persecutions would break break out depending on what was happening in those cities and whether the Christians became the scapegoats of a famine they might be having or of whatever it was. That's how it happened. They became scapegoats and powerful people would go after them and they were new and they were weird. I mean, the, the, we, we, there are Roman writings where they talk about these Christians and they go, they're atheists. And you go, they're atheists. They, they have no temple. They do no sacrifices. They don't have a God. They have no idols. They, you know, they, they don't believe in God because they don't do anything that people that believe in God do. And so they're, they're on the outside, they believe in only one God, they don't adopt the gods of their city. And, and so most of the persecution that would happen against them was not an overt, like you know, killing or something like that or imprisoning. Most of the persecution was the kind of thing that people experience when they're put on the outside because of their beliefs. And, and so they might not be invited into certain circles, they might miss a lot of networking opportunities business-wise. Uh, They may be, you know, have to eat lunch on their own, you know, when they're working in the fields. Uh, There's all kinds of things. Their kids may be put down uh, in the neighborhood. And and so these are some of the things. And there weren't, most people in in the Roman Empire could live in their own ghetto. There were no Christian ghettos to live in. And so they they had to live among people who were not uh, like them. And uh, other groups, you know, if they, you know, you'd have the Phoenician ghetto and you'd have the Jewish ghetto in a city and, and that sort of thing. We're going to look at that a little bit next week, in fact. So to people who are hated, basically, in general, in society, and they're certainly experiencing that, he reminds them that they're loved by God and adored by God. He reminds them that they're loved by God. He reminds them that they're in good company, too. Look at verse 4. As you come to Jesus, the living stone... Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. So he, he reminds him Jesus also was rejected, but he was precious to God. He reminds them in verse 9, they are a chosen people. They're chosen by God. He reminds them that they were not a people before, but now they are a people, the people of God. The implication is also that they, that they are precious just like Jesus was precious to God. And that should make a difference in our lives. Rejection is hard to take. Being disliked, left out is really, really hard because we love to be liked. Every single one of us wants to be liked. Um, Years ago, Lois and I watched uh, the movie uh, Diary of a, is it called Diary of a Wimpy Kid? Yeah. So... You may have seen that. It's been a while. I think they've maybe the last in a series came out a while ago. But uh, in, in the first one, I don't know how the other ones are, but in the first one, this kid has entered junior high at, at the time. They didn't call it, I don't think they called it middle school. It was junior high. I think it's seventh grade, and he's entered junior high. And he ha- he's, he's, trying to get, he's trying to get in with a good crowd. He wants to be liked. And it's like the whole movie are all of his attempts, if I remember correctly, to get liked by people, to become popular. And every single one of them like fails over and over and over again. Now he's got this best friend who, if you were here last week and we used the analogy of the, um, the Pixar film for the birds and the big bird, who's kinda happy and th- this is how this kid is because he, he's just like everybody's friend. <laughs> he doesn't wanna be popular, he just loves everybody and he just assumes that everybody loves him as well. And he doesn't feel on the outside, but his best friend here, you know, wants to be popular. And so in this one scene in the movie, the kid who wants to be popular uh, explains to his best friend what his next plan is. He says, you become popular if you're the best-dressed kid in school. And so the next scene is him walking into school, and he's wearing a tie, he's wearing a sharp shirt, And he's walking in and he's just kind of walking, you know, like this. And everybody's kind of looking at him. And you don't know what they're thinking. You don't know if they're thinking cool or thinking, what are you doing? But he finds out when he enters the classroom what they're thinking. Because just moments before he got there and walked through, his best friend walked through. And when he gets into the classroom, he sees his best friend is wearing the identical clothing. (laughs) And he looks at him and he says, I told you I was going to dress up today. He goes, I know, I know. That's why I thought we could be twins. (laughs) And so, you know, it goes to a voiceover where he's thinking in his head, and he goes, that's when I realize I think I need to get a new best friend. The reality is we're all still in middle school. We are. Uh, Every single one of us, you don't outgrow that. You want to be liked uh, by other people, and it kind of becomes an all-consuming type of desire that begins to dominate our lives, and it's never satisfied because we'll never be liked by everybody, and so we keep being driven in that way. In that way. But when we recognize that the most important, the most important person in the universe adores us. When we recognize who that person is and we get to know who that person, we get to know God better and better and better and we understand the depth of his love and we understand the craziness of his love, that he should love us the way that he does because he knows everything about us. He knows all the ugly little secrets. That he loves us in spite of all that. It should make a difference in our lives. If it doesn't, we've got to grow in a knowledge of him and we need to start looking honestly at ourselves. So that's the first thing that he does. He reminds them that they are adored by God. That's a source of strength in dark times. The second thing that he does is he talks about a supportive community. He says, look, you may not find a lot of acceptance. People may actually be opposing you, but you're in this together. You're in this together as a church. So he says in verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So the image that he's using here, is a little bit more subtle here, although it he gets a little less subtle in some of the other things he says. But the image here is you know, kind of like a wall being built, you know, brick upon brick. And as you're being, you're held together It as a wall, these bricks are holding each other up. And the idea is that as you kind of start knocking out bricks, the wall becomes weaker and weaker. And if you were to take out too many bricks, the wall falls in. He's saying, you need each other. You need to be in, you know, involved in each other's lives. You need to be doing life together. You need to be encouraging each other. Every single one of you needs to recognize you are dependent on each other. An interesting uh, quote from his blog a few years ago, Seth Godin, who is like a marketing guru, one of the most read blogs that's out there. Just He's, he's a marketing genius. And more than just marketing, he's a business genius. And a few years ago, I don't think he identifies as a Christian Uh, But this is what he said. He says, self-sufficiency appears to be a worthy goal. But it's now impossible if you want to actually get anything done. All of our productivity, leverage, and insight comes from being part of a community, not apart from it. The goal, I think, is to figure out how to become more dependent, not less. That's so totally counterintuitive in our culture to say your goal should not to become more independent. Your goal should be to become more dependent, which is his kind of twist of a word to try to make a point. Your goal should be to become more connected, to become more connected to each other because you're not going to accomplish anything of value if you are independent. And that's true for Christianity. We cannot live out our faith where we are disconnected from other believers. And other believers need us. Because when we're not in there in that wall, the wall starts crumbling and starts falling down. So students, some students here today are going to, uh, in a year, two, three, four years, going to go off to college or going to go off to your first job. And one of the things, that, the thing that's kind of always working in there, the temptation is to, is to there is a need to become, you know, less dependent on parents and to become more independent absolutely is a healthy healthy thing. But with that a lot of times comes a kind of a independence from God. And there's no way to sustain, you, you go off to another city, to whatever, there's no way to sustain a faith if you're not strongly connected, recognizing your dependence on your brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no way. Um, Families, as your kids grow, as, as all these kids were dedicated, as your kids grow older, one of the things, if they get involved in sports, music, some of those programs, it becomes very, very busy. Life gets very, you know, it's the driving kids around everywhere, you know. Yeah, you don't have to put them in the car seat, which is so difficult, because I have three grandchildren, they're all in car seats, and it's like <laughs> um, <laughs> They can get in themselves, but now you've got to drive them a million places, and life gets really, really busy, and it's really easy to, little by little, just drop off Christian community and what we do here together on the weekends, what we do, and, and there's no way to pass on a faith. There's no way to keep our faith strong in, in, in any world if we're not strongly connected recognizing our dependence on each other there's it's it's just the bible says it is impossible because that's how god has designed it that's how he has literally designed us to be we have to be connected wealthy people i'm looking at almost everybody here i'm talking almost everybody here wealthy people who can jump on airplanes who can go to cabins who can go to you know visit far off places uh, we can very easily become disconnected. And it takes a, a big effort to stay connected, to not just kind of give up, well, you know, I'm gone half the year, I'm doing this, I'm gone every other No, when you're here, be here. <laughs> when you're here, be here. Keep those connections strong. Wherever you go, be there with Christ. Um, so it's, it's very, we have to, we, we need a supportive community. And the supportive community is one of the sources of strength that we have in a dark world. One last one is a compelling vision, a compelling uh, mission, a compelling mission. Because we get strength from having a compelling purpose in our lives. From understanding that we're not just, we're not just on the outside or like these people suffering under persecution that Peter is writing to uh, we have a compelling purpose it helps when suffering to know that the suffering has a purpose and so a compelling mission and purpose is something that, 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 that's a source of strength we are carriers of God's message of love and grace we're his plan to spread his love and grace to the whole world uh, you and me you and me That's his plan, not me, the pastor. You and me, all of us in our daily lives. That's his plan, to spread the love of the gospel and the message of the gospel. One of the ways he makes this point, Peter makes this point, is by calling them priests. He says to these congregations, you are all priests. If you're a believer in Christ, today, in here, if you're a follower of Jesus, those words apply to you. You are part of a holy priesthood, and you're part of a royal priesthood. Those are the terms that are used here. You're a part of a royal and a holy priesthood. Now, priests had two functions. And as Peter is writing, everybody understands it. Because there were priests in the pagan temples. And there were priests in the Jewish temple. And so they, they understand that a priest represents the people for God. So a priest offers a sacrifice on behalf of the people to God. But that's not all that the priest does. The priest also represents God to the people. And that's really what he's getting at. As priests, you're representing God to the people. There's, there is the sacrifice part. You'll f- explore that in your uh, reflection questions, small group questions. But priests represent God to the people. All the people of God have always been called priests. A lot of people think this is a New Testament thing. This is because of Jesus. This is because of the Holy Spirit. Nope. It's always been that way. So, Moses gets the people, leads the people of Israel out of slavery into the wilderness. And on a particular day, about 30 days to be exact after getting out, they come to a mountain and Moses goes up into the mountain and he gets this message. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell. The people of Israel. This is, by the way, this is Hebrew parallelism. It's talking about the same group of people. Jacob is Abraham's, uh, what, great-grandson or something like that. And uh, his name was changed to Israel, and it's just saying the same thing in two different ways. So this is what you are to say to them. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, the plagues, the the great power, and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought uh, brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be a treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. The whole world is mine, he says. But you're called out to be priests in that world. And the, the, if, if you read that passage and other passages that are just like it, the emphasis as God's priests in the world is to be proclaimers of God's glory, to draw people to God, to be representing God to the world by the way that they live and by the message that they carry with them. They are to represent God to the nations. Jesus said the same thing. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount are the Beatitudes, and at the end of the Beatitudes, these blessings One of the things he says, blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name. For yours will be, and he he promises a blessing. And then he says, you're salt to the earth, which is a preservative in that world. You're salt to the earth. And you're not only salt, you're a light. And a light doesn't get covered. So then he ends that section... By saying this, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So you see the the echoes of that in this passage? Look at verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God the day he visits us. The life you live. They may, they may oppose you just like Jesus says. But some won't. Some will be drawn to the light of God. Some will be drawn. The goal is to win people over to God so that they join in worshiping God. That means living their whole life for God. I like what John Piper said some years ago. He said, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Uh, f- years ago when the movie Avatar came out. Became the biggest grossing movie. I don't know if it still is, but became the biggest grossing movie. We went and saw it as a, as a family. Um, we were visiting family, and we all got in the car. We went. We had bought our tickets well ahead of time. We, we sat down. We, we had gotten in towards the front. We'd gotten there really early. We got in. We got the seats that we wanted, and people were streaming in. It was sold out, and the guy one of the workers there that was kind of ushering people in, all of a sudden just stopped everybody as he saw what was happening. And he said, hey folks, you're about to see the greatest movie ever, my favorite movie of all time. I've never seen anything like this in a movie theater. He was so excited, he was like an evangelist for Avatar. (laughs) And he says, I want everybody to have a great experience. And they won't have a great experience if they can't sit next to their family. So please, with the people they came here with, so please, you know, move over so that there's, there's room for people to be able to sit together. Oh, please, please, you know, and he was just, like, begging us <laughs> to make it a good experience. There was a couple, a couple of seats in front of us. They did not move. We dutifully moved, like we got here in here early to get our seats, but you know, now we're gonna sit on their side. They were not to be moved, and I remember at the time being a little bit irritated at them. Um, now I think back, I'm like, they're like, just walk over me. You know, it doesn't matter. I want to see this movie right here. I, I, I get that because it's just a movie. But a lot of Christians are that way. It's like God calls us to be on mission for Him, and it's supposed to be an encouraging thing to us, but it's like, I am not going to be moved. <laughs> you know, I am not going to stick my neck out. I am not going to share Christ in my world. That's just going to bring problems to my life but Peter actually goes the other direction and he says in that dark world this is this is part of your strength is you have been called on mission for God you get to serve God on mission you get to you get to shine the light it's like that like Christine Kane's daughter let's go find some darkness you get to go out and find some darkness you won't have to look very far So I wanna take you back to the year 1989, and uh, it's a tennis match. It's the French Open, the semi-final. And uh, I I never heard this story. I think in 1989, there were just a lot of other things happening in my life, a move, and uh, working like five jobs, I think, uh, teaching and doing all kinds of stuff, and it was was a crazy time in my life, having babies. Uh, Not me, Lois. Uh, that I, I never heard this story until just recently. But it's the French Open, and uh, it's a match between, in the semifinal between uh, Yvonne Lendl, the number one player in the world, uh, against Michael Chang, a 17-year-old that hardly anybody had heard of. He'd made a name for himself in the junior ranks, but there he was in the semifinal against... Yvonne Lendl, and the, the person who was telling the story, when I heard it, was talking about how Lendl was like this emotionless, chiseled six foot two machine, like a robot, and, um, and, and he had wiped the court clean with Michael Chang earlier in the year. Uh, Chang was one of the youngest competitors in the majors that year, and um, was like the opposite of Lendl. He's 135 pounds. I don't know how tall he was, but he's just 135 pounds. So Lendl Lendl starts out strong and wins the first two sets, if that's what they call it in tennis. I forgot the... And um, all he has to do is win one more to eliminate him, but Chang starts uh, coming back and he wins the third. And then in the fourth, he's doing really well. Nobody's expecting him to win, but he's doing really well. By the way, I kind of obsessed with this, and I've watched it on YouTube and, and uh, watched interviews and watched the actual match, and, and not the whole match, but this part of the match that I'm going to describe right now. And so in that fourth set, he starts getting back cramps and leg cramps. And he almost can't function. And so the game kind of gets boring for the fans because Lindell is, you know, killing the ball, and then Chang just starts lobbing it. And the commentators are commenting why he's doing it. He's stretching while that ball's in the air. He's dying. He's during, you know, between points he's going over and he's getting like, uh, whenever they're allowed to do that, he's getting some water, he's eating bananas, he's trying to, trying to get str- the cramps to stop, trying to get enough strength to, to stay in. And, uh, and it's, it's like in one of the interviews later, uh, probably Lendl never talked about what his strategy was there, probably because it didn't work. Uh, But Lendl's strategy seems to have been just kind of lob it back because he's obviously going to just break down. His body's breaking down. He can't do it anymore, and I'll just, I'll outlast him. And so he's kind of lobbing it back, not taking any chances, even though he could probably put him out of his misery rather quickly. He just kind of keeps it going Commentators are commenting on it. The commentators are talking about Chang, you know, just dying and, and it's just so sad. He was doing so well. He's not going to win, all that sort of thing. And um, the camera's focusing on his legs to see if they can see, you know, what's happening. And they're, they're focusing on his exhaustion. And there comes a certain point, Chang talking about it later, where he decided that he was, he was done. He couldn't do it anymore. The pain was too bad. The cramps were too bad. He didn't have the strength. He, he basically couldn't get like his arm over his head anymore to, to serve. And he was just so tired. And so he began walking, he said, to the judge to forfeit. And on the way to go to forfeit, he feels the Holy Spirit intervened in his life. Now, right at that moment, what he sensed was if I quit now, I'll always quit. Later, reflecting on it, he really felt that that God's like, you're like you're the only Asian in the finals. China, this is Tiananmen Square era, where the students are protesting. Your parents' home country, he's he's an American, but your parents' home country, they they need those, those students, they need some encouragement. You're 17 years old. 17 years old. Um, later reflecting, he thought, maybe that's what God was up to. But he, he felt the Holy Spirit. And they say the Holy Spirit because he, he's a very committed follower of Jesus, devoted follower of Jesus. And that moment when he starts walking is kind of the moment that the people that Peter is writing to are in. They're wanting to quit because it's too hard. And a lot of Christians come to that point as well where it's like wanting to quit because it's just becoming too hard. And so Chang turns around when when he felt the Holy Spirit, God impressing on him, don't quit. And God impressing, the other thing that he felt God was impressing on him is you don't get to choose who wins and who loses, I do. That was the other impression right there. You can watch the thing on YouTube. And that's what's going through his head as this is happening. And he gets back. And I don't know if this is exactly when it happens, but he gets back and it's a famous thing. He's bouncing the ball. He's got he's to serve and he's just so tired. And he goes, boop, underhand. <laughs> and Lendl's like, hits it back. Not a good hit back. And boom, Chang hits it over. And that's the beginning of the end. Chang wins. He goes on to win. He goes to the finals. Oh, after he wins, they, you know, they talk to him, and he talks to the crowd, and he gives credit to Jesus for his win. The crowd boos. It's France. <laughs> it's pretty secularized culture. They don't like bringing up Jesus in sporting events. And, um, and so they boo him, and then they boo him throughout the whole final. He said, I've never experienced, I've never been booed before. That sense of like, I'm out here on the court killing myself. And people are booing me. But he wins the final. It's the only major he ever won. He's in the Hall of Fame. He won like 32 titles, but it's the only major that he ever won. And, um, and part of the reason that he won, especially with Lindell, is he started just doing crazy things. He started taking chances. He started like doing things that he wouldn't normally do. And, um, and it threw Lindell off his game and, and all of that. So he, he, he wins the final. For five years, every time he goes to the French Open, the crowds boo him. About two years into it, it's like a second year of being booed, he calls his father, who's also a devoted follower of Jesus. And he says, Dad, I'm not coming to the French Open anymore. I'm done. This is, does not feel good, being booed. It's taken all the joy out of, out of playing tennis. And he said, his father said this. He said, you know what, Michael? The Lord hasn't called you to just play in the places where people love you and support you and treat you good. The Lord called you to be a tennis player because you're a witness for Christ. doesn't matter what kind of response you get. What's important is how you respond to it. He says the next three years he got booed, but on like the fifth year or sixth year, the crowd stopped booing, and he said, I don't know what happened, but they started treating me as if I was a Frenchman. (laughs) Um, And I wouldn't have experienced that if my dad hadn't intervened. God is calling us to be on mission for him and to be on a mission with joy and respect and um, with hope and with love, a mission of sharing God's grace with a world that is increasingly darker and needs the light of Christ. Let's pray.